until we defund the police, you know, and invest that money in alternatives in such a way that allows us to to uh, point to it and say, look, we're not getting less safe, we're getting more safe. Um, until we can do that, I think this kind of perverse extortion racket uh, that is policing is going to be able to continue uh, unhindered. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, I'm Alex Vitale, professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and author of The End of Policing, and it's my pleasure to facilitate this conversation this evening between myself, Robin D.G. Kelly of UCLA and Gio Maher of Vassar, and also the author of this amazing new book that's brought us together, A World Without Police. And we're here tonight to discuss the merits of body cameras and community policing to fix policing in America. But seriously, (laughs) we're well past that point. And in fact, in this moment, we've also begun to move past this idea that we're going to fix policing by throwing a few cops in prisons as well. And so I thought maybe we should just start and talk a little bit about why this this idea that we're going to fix policing with a few procedural reforms or by throwing some killer cops in jail is not going to give us the kind of transformational change we're looking for. So I know this is something you, you've both uh, been very articulate about. So let me maybe start with uh, Geo, give us some ideas in the book, and then maybe that can be a jumping off point for some more considerations. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Alex, for, you know, for being here, for facilitating. It's really such a huge honor to be here with both you and, and Robin uh, to talk about the book. And, you know, I'm really honored that that people have read it, that people are reading it, and, and I hope it becomes uh, ultimately a useful weapon in this struggle as we move forward. Um, you know, Part of what I argue in the book, and and this is not my argument, this is the argument of W.E.B. Du Bois up through the, you know, the current wave of incredible abolitionist literature um, that we're, you know, uh, lucky enough to have and to be able to count on uh, in the present. More coming soon, more books coming this year. We're riding a wave of abolitionist theoretical production that itself is the result of abolitionist organizing in the streets. Um, And and so I'm just happy to be able to uh, make an intervention uh, within that context, in other words, within the context in which abolition has reached uh, mainstream consideration um, and in, in which it's taken seriously. And we need to, I think, begin to take ourselves more seriously moving forward um, and building those alternatives uh, that, that that we require that will make um, policing, prisons, and the rest of the carceral apparatus obsolete. Uh, and so it feels almost silly in the presence of someone like, uh, you know, Robin, someone like Alex to, to, to say uh, very basic things about why policing cannot be reformed. But we can start with the fact that policing was never meant to perform as we as many of us think it was never about uh, 
uh, protecting and serving the majority or certainly not all of the population. It was never about public safety. It was always about two fundamental things, right? One, of course, is maintaining a pliant labor force um, for uh, exploitation, whether that's in the form of slavery, sharecropping, uh, you know, convict leasing or any of the other forms. Um, and deeply intertwined with this, uh, the question of white supremacy, racial fear, and the way that that manifests in terms of policing, um, in terms of containment, and in terms of mass incarceration. That's what the police are there for, right? To police whiteness and to police wealth. And so the idea from the very beginning that we can reform that away or that we can uh, you know, introduce small changes that will uh, ultimately change the police into something that they were never meant to be um, is, is, is to start on the wrong foot. It's to start from a misunderstanding. We need to begin from the understanding that that's what policing has always been about and the realization on the basis of that that Listen, if we're going to fundamentally change the way that our society looks, um, there's no way we could have something called the police. And inversely, there's no way we can get rid of the police without really radically transforming the fundamental structures of our society, because they're the same structures, right? Um, slavery was abolished in the first wave of abolitionism. Reconstruction, the creative counterpart that's necessary for that abolition to be successful, was destroyed by white terrorism. And what we're left with was police and prisons, ultimately. We are living in the ashes of a failed uh, abolition in the first wave. And that's why we're all uh, again, once again, talking about finishing that abolitionist project, which requires, um, you know, of course, creating an alternative world, um, the, the kind of alternative that should have been built in the first place. But Robin, you know, we, we, we still hear though so often from folks who are subjected to police violence and injustice that somehow they're gonna get relief by throwing some cops in prison. Right. Um, and that's that's a broad uh, issue, which we could talk about in terms of the consequences for those who actually commit um, forms of violence or what considered under the law criminal behavior. But let me just go back to a couple of things. One, I just want to just congratulate you, Gio, because this book is extraordinary. Um, you know, it not only pays attention to the history of the long history of police violence, but the recent history but policing more broadly beyond the institutions of the police. Um, but also, you know, you make the case very clearly uh, why reform, which keeps repeating itself, <laughs> attempts at reform, just won't work. Um, but more importantly, you just to reiterate the point you made, um, you have this wonderful line uh, in the book where you say, I have a confession to make, the chapter's argument about this protect and serve is a false premise that the police were never intended to protect and serve. And any reform, even if, even if every single reform that was attempted were implemented, it's, you know, there's no way it could be implemented because some of those reforms, as problematic as they might be, uh, would actually undercut the role of the police. Let me give you some specific examples. So for example, we, almost all the reforms that we talk about today um, things like civilian review boards, um, body cams, better training, altering the use of force policy, more, you know, using tasers, uh, using some other kind of mechanisms to beat people down without killing them, right? Shooting them in the leg, you know? <laughs> more transparency, more black cops, more Latinx cops, uh, residency requirements. Um, that is to say, officers live where they work better data to flag, uh, you know, patterns of misconduct. 
uh, uh, banning chokeholds. I mean, the list goes on. You know, having studied this and you've studied this very carefully, you could make a lot of, except for some of the new technology, all these kinds of demands were in place. The amazing thing is that civilian review boards are one of those things that there's always been pushback. And when it's been accepted, civilian review boards tend to be um, controlled by the police themselves or controlled by a class in the case of places like Chicago and elsewhere, where there's no real civilian review board. It's just sort of a, a chimera. But again, um, if there was such a thing as a people's um, you know, review board, elected, run, controlled by, has some power to fire and hire people to remake the police, that's something that would never be accepted because to do that would basically mean to dismantle the force. Uh, as we know it. So that's why. And then one last thing I'll just say to Alex, you know, in terms of this question, um, we have to remember, there's another point you make in the book, is that the very police department that um, in initially sanctioned the murder of George Floyd, the Minneapolis Police Department, was the poster child for reform. It was considered the best train in mental health crisis intervention, in, they were doing all this implicit bias training, de-escalation. They were praised as being uh, compassionate. All that stuff. That's the Minneapolis police. <laughs> and still, this is what we see um, with respect to George Floyd. So, so that's sort of, I guess, my take on the problematics of, of the form. It's not like it's going to go away, the, the, the arguments for it. Um, but the other question that you pose, which is a question about whether or not people should go to prison or jail, that's another question, which I think deserves uh, a deeper um, conversation. And so, I, and yeah, go uh, ahead. Taylor. I think that's a complicated question. Uh, you know, uh, I do say in the book that um, that I think we need to have a, a nuanced view of, of, of the question of, of putting police on trial, in part because I think we have very sort of important countervailing tendencies, right? On the one hand, and I think most abolitionists' concern is that by putting individual cops on jail, you're putting out not only an individual solution, but a punitive solution. And I, and, and I think it's incredibly important to understand that dynamic. Um, I also think it's important to take seriously when the masses of people struggling in the streets are making that demand, right? Um, and are mobilizing around that demand. And of course, the role of abolitionists, I think, is to always push beyond the individual, to push beyond and toward a horizon that involves and envisions a broader reconstruction. Um, and so I think the question, you know, of these police trials is, is complicated. Uh, you know, I, I hope that the Chauvin trial has done something to um, increase the sense by many police officers that someone's looking over their shoulder, that they should be worried, that they should change the way they behave, that if anything, they should leave the job and go somewhere else. Um, and insofar as that weakens police power, I, I think I welcome that piece. But, um, you know, I don't I don't really hear many people suggesting that now everything is fixed because, you know, because Chauvin was convicted. And I think and I think that's precisely the result of the fact that people in the streets and abolitionists, you know, were, were out there arguing um, that the solution is a much broader one and a much more importantly structural one. Oh, okay. So I guess I'll take over as a moderator. So, <laughs> let, let, so since uh, until Alex is here, I'll, I'll just jump in. Um, you know, I had there were so many amazing, like one-liners from your book that I think could be books themselves. I'm just gonna say, throw out two, and I was hoping that you comment on one. One is, if whiteness were a job, it would be the police. <laughs> The second one, 
what is the thin blue line if not a border? Um, but, uh, you know, but I appreciate you pulling those lines out. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, it, it won't be a surprise to you, of course, that um, the idea of whiteness and policing being conjoined, if not synonymous in U.S. history, is one that goes way back. Again, I derive this in particular from the work of Du Bois, who I think in Black Reconstruction gave us an incredible um, theory of American policing, um, of, of the ways in which um, American police emerged out of, you know, as, as many of us have said and heard said, out of, uh, you know, slave catchers. But what that entails is something much broader in the present. It means policing historically has never been distinguishable from white vigilantes. Um, and, and I think one of the things that I try to argue in the book, this gets to the second piece, is the way in which um, that that is a question of border policing as well. That's always been a question that involves the role of the so-called Texas Rangers as white supremacists and colonial vigilantes who are um, essentially dispossessing uh, brown people of land in the Southwest, pushing back the border and making it safe for white uh, capital accumulation. Um, and you know, and this is where the thin blue line as a border um, becomes so resonant. But that's not separate, of course, from the experience of many black Americans as well, right? What is gentrification? If not, you know, um, the ways in which police mark out a new territory, begin to police it and circulate in that space as a preparation for uh, more accumulation, as a preparation for real estate development, to make people comfortable to move into those neighborhoods and raise, you know, raise the rents and raise the real estate values. So I think the way that those two pieces work together, I think, is is essential as well. And, and part of what I want to draw out, particularly with the question of whiteness and policing and vigilantism, is that. You know, we know, I think, very well by now that it's not just the police, right? Trayvon Martin was not killed by, uh, you know, a, a police officer. He was killed by someone who, on the one hand, identified as white, despite everything, and who, on the other hand, saw himself as a neighborhood watch captain, right? Self-deputized, you know, put himself in that position. And we see that all the time. We see that in the video of a you know, black teenagers at a pool party being tackled by police and by white onlookers, right? Grown men who are tackling people to help the police because they understand themselves by virtue of their white skin to be adjuncts of the police. Sorry about that interruption. Yeah, both Geo and I are in the Northeast where the remnants of Hurricane Ida are coming through. And I, I think my our internet had kicked out for a second. So anyway, so, Gio, does that mean then we can't just fix the problem of police power by getting rid of their unions? We hear this discourse, right, that says, well, if we just get rid of the unions, you know, that'll fix the problem. And, and interestingly, you tend to hear this often from the police reform crowd because mm -hmm. they're they're like, well, we're trying to implement all these reforms and it's the police union that stands in the way. But this is also like a gross misreading of the nature of police power. It is certainly right. Police are not simply reducible to the unions. Um, they, you know, the institution and the broader policing apparatus goes well beyond these unions. Um, at the same time, I think, and I make, you know, uh, uh, a pretty forceful argument in the book to this effect. I think we need to target police unions. I think we need to obliterate police unions because the way I understand them is as the most ferocious and fascistic spearhead of police power. If you look at what they do on the local level, the way they negotiate local contracts that make it almost impossible for some city administrations to break with them or even break those contracts. You have cities declaring financial emergencies um, to be able to get out of a police contract that they're bound into. And, and to be clear, we're talking about both 
the financial piece of that lo local contract, but also the impunity piece, the piece that makes it almost impossible for the police themselves to be held uh, accountable. On the state level, uh, these police unions push through law enforcement bill, uh, you know, officers' bill of rights, which are these really absurdly special layers of due process for police officers specifically. And I think if many people realized that there was an entire class of people that was legally endowed with special rights, I think they would find that to be, um, you know, a bit strange and scandalous uh, as well. But the most important part of what police unions that they, um, you know, what I argue in the book is that the police, the world of the police is an expansive force. It's a force that always wants more resources, but also more impunity. Um, and once we understand it is an expansive force, we need to understand those forces that are driving it. And the police unions are right at the heart of that. Um, and this goes all the way up to the level of public discourse um, and ideology and the way that Bob Kroll um, and others are, you know, on Fox News arguing for total impunity arguing against all forms of oversight, all forms of a restriction of police power. And I think I think that targeting police unions is an incredibly necessary task. It's an unavoidable task. There are people within the union movement, certainly the leadership, that are worried about, for example, throwing uh, police out of the AFL-CIO. Um, but I think many others before me have made the argument very well um, that when you agree to have police in your unions, what you're agreeing is that millions of other low-income workers of color in particular don't matter to the union movement. That there's no future vision of a union movement that is multiracial, um, that is made up of the poorest, that is trans, you know, transnational, right? Um, because the other thing is that these police unions, if you look at what they ask for, it goes way beyond policing. The Fraternal Order of Police, which supported Trump one, not once but twice, along with the Border Patrol Union, along with the ICE Union, they called for tighter sanctions on Cuba. In other words, they, they, they call for tighter uh, immigration uh, controls. They, they have an entire package of policing, you know, of police power that they want to impose on the entirety of society. Um, and so I think we need to understand them for the, the spearhead that they are um, and attack them directly. But always, I mean, I think to your point, Alex, as a way of weakening the broader structure that is policing. And Robin, what do you think it says about the state of the American labor movement that they continue to fully embrace police unions? Right. Well, I, I actually think there's a struggle going on. Like in SEIU, for example, there is this contention in SEIU that's actually fighting to break with um, the police unions. And um, because some of those unions are actually affiliated with SEIU. Uh, so that, that struggle is taking place right now. Um, and I think that there's a difference between uh, labor bureaucrats and a rank and file. Uh, many of the rank and file members, as well as, you know, the more democratic union or uh, oriented uh, uh, organizers are ones who see the police, that thin blue line, as the first line of, of defense against labor. You know, it's one thing to, uh, to basically be affiliated with an organization that protects workers who do violent work, what Nicole Siegel calls uh, violence work, uh, that is you know, that has without impunity. It's another thing to try to organize protests, pickets, and who do you confront? The police. You know, so I think that's really significant. Um, the other thing, and this is the point- And that if I made, could just, if I could just, you know, you, but we don't have that many pickets. We don't have that many militant labor uh, actions, right? We don't have that kind of social unionism. And I think that's part of why the labor movement has been so slow more broadly, right, to see the fundamental contradiction of having police as 
major components of our movement. Yeah, but what I would what I would add to that is that um, the absence of those kinds of pickets in the militant labor movement is fairly new. I mean, it was like in the early 2000s and the 90s, even in the era of sort of high neoliberalism, that you still had like major strikes and struggles going on and the police were brought in to, to, to put them down. Um, it's, it's not like the old days of the, of the Boston police strike, for example, or other strikes where, you know, um, where either privatized or public police would, would join the pickets. That doesn't really happen. Um, I think, you know, historically, one thing to consider is the relationship between um, the austerity measures and the shift to neoliberalism in the 70s and 80s in police strikes. Because what we did see were a whole lot of police strikes, um, you know, and, and not just police strikes, but police actions where they would, in Cincinnati and um, in, in, uh, in places like San Francisco, places like that, where they would just show up and disrupt, you know, um, they'd show up at the, at the city council, show up at the mayor's office, they would, you know, block traffic with their cars. Um, and, and some of those strikes were not just about wages, they were also about so-called reverse discrimination, where they were arguing that black cops were being hired, black and brown cops were being hired over them. Uh, and one of the things that the police unions have a history of doing, the so-called, um, well, the, all the unions, uh, is, um, you know, filing, not protecting um, black officers uh, from uh, misconduct cases. Not, I'm not, this is not a defense of black misconduct. It's saying that there's a higher ratio of black officers with misconduct um, uh, complaints against them that go forward than against white officers. And, and when they began to organize, and it's something you also make, you say in the book, Geo, you know, you have groups like the Afro-American Patrolman's League and other organizations in San Francisco and Chicago trying to defend the interests, not of just black cops, but actually defend the interests of black communities. Yeah. I mean, they actually did that in Chicago. And what happened to them? Those cats were being arrested, mm -hmm. you know, and the, the and and they were they were pushed out of any bargaining power in terms of the relationship between cities and um and the police departments. So even when your attempts at really lame, sometimes interesting reformist efforts on the part of police officers who are already targeted because of racism, that those institutions end up getting pushback unless they're incorporated into um, the patrol into the traditional unions. Yeah, no, and Robin, I think you've shown really clearly the ways that I mean, this isn't to say that black unions in policing are, are are the way forward. It's actually to say the opposite, right? That they're put in a literally impossible situation. Um, and and I think even though we've seen less of that maybe recently, we do see a similar dynamic where uh, I think black and brown cops who want to, uh, you know, uh, maybe complain about misconduct by other officers are driven out, right, are forced out of the force, of course, can't uphold that role anymore because it's incompatible with what it was that they were trying to do. Um, and I think this is totally consistent with the way the police unions have operated, right? There are just basic sort of material questions, right? One, you know, uh, union police unions have gained financially a privileged position exactly the same moment that the rest of the labor movement was losing that, right? They've got different trajectories. They move in very different directions. 
Two, police unions always do that by um, by bargaining for a privileged position. Um, and they have two chips in doing that. One is, if you don't give us privileges, we'll act like a real labor movement. Uh, but the more powerful one and the one that emerges kind of historically at the same time is to say, um, we need a privileged position because we need to take care of those scary people of color as well, right? You need us. They turn and they say that to the city administration. They are given a privileged position. And it's, as I argue in the book, uh, and as others have argued, it's a corporatist position, right? They exist there as the glue to hold together this white supremacist structure, not as a, an antagonistic force to capital um, or to the city uh, administration. So these are unions that have nothing to do with the rest of the unions. They don't work with them. They don't support them. They don't show solidarity with them. And where else do you have a union of work of so-called workers who negotiate the right to kill other workers with impunity exactly. and you don't exactly exactly i mean and just just to follow up i mean could you imagine a union that's fighting against civilian review that's supporting conservative right-wing mayors um that's that opposes liberal judges that lobbying you know to sort of for, for the extent of the art, art weapons you know that's what they want. They want bigger and better weapons and no, no accountability. I mean, what kind of, what kind of job? What like, what kind of union does that? You know, because ironically, it actually puts the very cops that claim to be defending them in in in, in harm's way in a certain kind of sense. Like you would think that a, an actual police officer would want like more public safety, would want to be safer and would want um, a judicial system that's fair rather than one that simply supports what they do. Because ultimately what ends up happening is that same system of policing produces fascists, you know, just like the military. And, what, oh, and one other thing is that um, I remember reading about an attempt uh, on the part of the CIO to organize a police union in the 1940s in LA and the argument against it was that the police are like the military. They can't have any semblance of democracy. They can't have any semblance of choice. Because if they do, that undermines the hierarchy um, uh, of, of not just law enforcement, but the kind of um, chain of command, that they basically have to do what the state tells them to do. Anything else would be dangerous. And then that becomes embedded in, you know, it becomes ingrained in the consciousness of, of these folks we call police and to call them workers in the same sense um, is, is, I think, a mistake. I mean, policing as an institution is embedded in an ideology of kind of free market capitalism, individual responsibility, white supremacy. And so those values are fundamentally antithetical to producing not just a labor movement, but a world worth living in. And, and police unions, right, are just one node of the political movements that are advancing those fascistic politics, right? So, Gio, you point out, right, police are not just sympathetic to the Oath Keepers, some of them are in the Oath Keepers. Yeah. And this has always been the case. Police were members of the KKK, members of the John Birch Society. In fact, I think there were estimates that 25, 30% of all John Birchers were connected to law enforcement. 
they were f- major figures in, in anti-communist crusades, right? So even if we were to diminish the power of the union as one particular institution, you know, we've seen in the U.S. and in other countries, police mobilize their political power through fraternal orders, through political parties, through these right-wing anti-communists and fascist groupings. So, of course, we, we have to understand that police power as embedded in these, in these larger struggles. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, as you rightly point to, these include fascist movements, white supremacist movements, um, the, the so-called patriot movement, which I, I kind of argue in the book bears a structural similarity to how the police operate. What do I mean by that? I mean that um, what are the who are the oath keepers, right? Um, they're people who claim to uphold an oath to the Constitution, um, but who are perfectly willing to do so by striking down laws that they don't think count, um, especially those who that you know that point towards some level of formal equality um, in in a deeply unequal society. Um, and so, and I think that's exactly what the police do uh, every day. And then, and 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 they do so in the spirit of overt institutionalized white supremacy, economic uh, inequality, and obedience to the law. And obedience, which of course doesn't apply to them at the same time. And so um, they play the same kind of role. And so it's really no surprise that they are um, deeply embedded within one one another. And, and I cite a report that says, you know, talks about the, the very important dynamic of um, white supremacists infiltrating the police. Um, and I think that's important to to understand and to think about. At the same time, I argue that it's not really infiltration, right? These are totally complicit institutions. And it's no surprise that if you're a bully with a chip on your shoulder who has white supremacist, you know, and misogynist sympathies, that you would become a cop, right? Really, what else would you want to be uh, at that point? Um, and on top of that, um, many of these same studies show the ways in which the police are a, you know, you know, are a crucible of white supremacy. They create it, they they build it, they empower it. Um, and so um, it's about understanding the ways that these are tied together. And then when we're talking about these broader systems, absolutely, we need to talk about imperialism as well, right? We need to talk about the fact that many, uh, you know, police, border patrol, ICE agents were also in the military. The fact that these institutions work together, the fact that they're trained jointly, the fact that they're armed, you know, in, in, in ways that are sort of completely embedded with uh, global imperialism. And that all points toward uh, very important and hard questions that I think your question raises, Alex. Namely, if we turn around and fire all the cops tomorrow, what do we have? We have an army of white supremacists, fascists that we need to deal with. And this is something that I bring out in the book, partly through the international context, because you know, in you know, in places like Mexico and, and in Colombia, when you have right-wing death squads that are dismantled, um, or when we when you have police that are you know corrupt, violent police that are fired, you see very clearly you know where the back and forth goes between these movements. And and unless you can figure out a way to really demobilize the police, um, ideologically, politically, um, then then it becomes very difficult, difficult and very dangerous if we don't understand these things as being connected to one another. So this really gets to the question of political power. Yeah. And you talk a lot about the ways in which policing is antithetical with democracy and community empowerment. And I think that's really important because we have this whole, you know, discourse of community policing and whatnot that imagines, right, this liberal mythos about democracy that that the police are here to help us by the neutral enforcement of a legal framework that just benefits everyone through its existence. And of course, 
policing never neutrally enforces the law, but even when it does, it still produces these disproportionalities. So how do we articulate the the need to build a counter vision of community power that's not rooted in this fake discourse of, you know, liberal democracy and constitutional law and neutral policing? I mean, that's a great question. And I think, um, you know, again, we get back to the the foundations into the origins. The police in, in Du Bois analysis embody the betrayal of many poor whites in the South of their potential class solidarity with poor black um, Southerners. Um, it is in the process of selling out that solidarity that the police are born. That's what they do. And that's why, again, it's not just about the police, it's about the broader policing apparatus of vigilantes, of uh, white people calling 911, of gentrification, and the way that these all uh, work together. And from the beginning, we're talking about the police being born, therefore, as a result of the destruction of what Du Bois called abolition democracy. And he didn't mean liberal democracy. He meant what happens to liberal democracy when you begin to push back on white supremacy and slavery. He meant the, the, the moment in which a kind of quantity turns into quality, right? You introduce people into a political system and they transform it, right? Black rule in South Carolina was not the same as liberal democracy as we understand it. Um, and you know this participatory piece that begins to play a role in it is something that we need to preserve, I think, when it comes to thinking about democracy. And I say that in part because on the one hand, I think some people will say, well, what is, do we really care about democracy? Is it worth preserving? Um, but I think Du Bois, and I, I agree, finds a great deal of leverage in this idea of a radically transformative vision of democracy and what becomes possible when we push back. What would happen today if we push back on disenfranchisement, if we push back on felon disenfranchisement in particular, and if we push back in more radical ways on the role of white supremacy and policing in our broader overall political picture? We've already, I think, begun to see what it looks like. We've already seen the beginning of, of of transformations and echoes in the political system of the power that's that's playing out in the streets. And so I think that's really the potential and that's the base of the power that um, that we need to build moving forward. But we do we do that by electing more AOCs or can we can we fix this strictly in the electoral arena? Mm-hmm. I mean I I a lot of my work, earlier work has been on Venezuela, has been on Latin American politics. And in that context, what we always talk about is the way in which constituted power, in other words, what happens in the halls of power in the state is always just an echo of what's going on in the streets, the constituent power of the people in the streets. And what we see in Latin American history, for example, is the fact that those, uh, countries where the most radical leaders came to power or the most radical transformative processes began to develop in Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador to some degree, and elsewhere, um, that begins with an explosive resistance in the streets. In other words, in all of those countries, you had a Ferguson, you had a Baltimore, you had a Minneapolis of people resisting, um, making clear, fundamentally and absolutely clear to everyone um, that things could not go on as they had been, um, and there needed to be some fundamental transformation. Now, what happened in those countries was the process of also then rewriting the constitution, beginning in more ambitious ways to transform the political apparatus, which is something, unfortunately, that we haven't seen you know, much uh, in, in the way of in this country. Um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with electing um, you know, left-wing uh, political leaders, especially on the local level. You know, We have a left-wing district attorney here, San Francisco with Chesa Bodan. Um, and, and these things, I think, can, pr- can play very important roles, but we always have to understand them as uh, responding to a more fundamental force, which is the source of the power that we have. Right. Can I jump in on this on this question? Um, because um, 
I, I agree with all that. And in fact, I would also build on something else that Gio talks about in the book or said earlier in our conversation. Um, and that is the difficulty of dismantling the police. Even if you have uh, progressive um, or progressive identified elected officials. I'll give you a really good, good example. So this is brilliant young scholar, Toussaint Lozier, who uh, has a book coming out and has written really eloquently on Chicago. And he has this great article, it's also in the book, about Harold Washington. So Mayor, Mayor Harold Washington, of course, was, was like the Rainbow Coalition uh, figure who ran on basically ending police power, reforming the police. No, no one talked about abolition uh, at that moment. He was making that case in the 60s. He gets elected. Uh, and the, long story short, what Tucson shows in, in his work is that he was just unable to make any headway with the Chicago Police Department. In fact, he appointed the first black um, uh, head of the police department, the first sort of, you know, um, uh, 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 police chief, not really a chief, but he, so first black person in that position who ended up facilitating the ongoing torture by the Chicago Police Department. Um, and part of it was the things that he was demanding, his, the people around him said, it's not possible, you can't get that. It's just, you just can't do that politically. So it goes back to your point, Alex, about like, how do we understand um, the actual functioning of political power? Is, is there electoral or other, you know, legislative means to be able to address these issues. And I think I want to go back to, again, Gio's point. I mean, there might be, because you also point out that the places that are considered successes, like Camden, were not successes at all. Um, and that sometimes what may look like local successes without actually dismantling the structure of policing, uh, just end up reinforcing them and just giving them a different kind of valence which goes back to the fundamental uh, pro project, which is to really dismantle and end policing as we know it and replace the whole structure with something and then deal with the fallout uh, with other means, you know? You know, the, I think part of the challenge for Harold Washington, right, is he's trying to figure out how to get out from under austerity in the period of deindustrialization, global deregulation. And I think part of what, what this shows and what I think needs to be central to our analysis is the way in which policing is so intimately caught up with austerity. So you hear these, these uh, silly narratives from police apologists like Matt Iglesias and stuff that say, oh, cutting police budgets, that just sounds like more austerity to me. But in fact, what we see is as social services are cut, as medical services are cut, as homelessness increases, policing's importance to these local mayors increases mm -hmm. because that's how they manage these social problems in the absence of any real resources. And I think that's part of what Harold Washington came up against was that how could he cut the police budget when the community is having to deal with this explosion of disorder and in some cases crime 
when he didn't have any resources to really address the underlying problems. Yeah, and I think there is, uh, as you pointed to, Alex, there's, an, there's this, a totally inverse relationship to what I think is often posited, right? Not only the case um, that the police gain their power from that austerity, um, but on top of that, police unions have always been willing to trade um, economic benefits for impunity. Um, you know, they're, they've been put in situations where they have to choose. They choose impunity. They say, you know what, maybe I get my retirement gets cut a little bit, but at least, you know, I won't, you know, no one will know, we will be able to know what I'm doing on the job, right? And and what kind of um, atrocities I'm, uh, I'm committing on, on the job. And I, and I think that's a more crucial point because there are people even on the left who are trying to say, well, the police are also subject to the same kind of austerity we're all suffering today. And it's false. It's fundamentally false. Police salaries, budgets, everything has been going up. If you look at, I mean, people are shocked when they look at in the cities like Philadelphia, you know, Oakland, and see what police are actually making on the job, especially when you take into account the scandal of overtime. Um, it's 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 absurd, and it's and it's got nothing to do. Again, it, they don't share conditions with the working class. They don't share share an outlook or a function certainly with the working class, and they're the stormtroopers of austerity in reality. Right, and and also one one other thing too is that. If you if you balance the amount of money that the city of Chicago had to pay out for yeah. wrongful death, police brutality settlements, I mean we're talking about billions of dollars, mm-hmm. you know, over a couple of decades, um, that money could have been used <laughs> for some social services. I mean, and this is this is one of the ironies is that if you use the police to resolve the issues of social problems and resolve the issues caused by austerity, as opposed to actually you know, putting more money into those kinds of social programs uh, and into people's pockets, uh, then that's what you get. And, you know, one of the things that, one of the outcomes of police violence is the cost, uh, which is financed by big capital, you know, through police brutality bonds, but the cost of that violence to the taxpayers. You know, it's a huge amount of money. You know, and then, and of course, we know, and we could probably get to this, uh, that the police, as, as Gio talks about, and, and as you talk about in, in your work, um, one of the ways that they were able to shore up maybe shortfalls in budgets is through things like civil asset forfeiture, uh, which may not in the long run be huge amounts, but it's pretty substantial, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, and so essentially theft, a violation of the mm-hmm. Fifth Amendment becomes the way for police departments, let alone the use of fees and fines and the, the hyper policing on the smallest uh, um, status violations as a way to generate revenue. I mean, what kind of what kind of economic system is that? What kind of budgetary system is that? And, and this is the base. This and you know, it's one in which police budgets just swell, swell, and they justify just like the FBI did, justify their very presence, mm-hmm. you know, by producing more chaos. And, you know, and so in a sense, it, it goes back and reinforces the argument that the police just it just doesn't work for our lives. You, you pointed out recently, Robin, that that L.A. has paid out almost a billion dollars in settlements over the last 10 years or so. And. It raises, though, this issue about how we should think about the money. So uh, first, I want to say we will be taking questions. I am seeing the questions from the uh, YouTube chat, and I've tried to work some of them into the conversation, but I'll take some additional ones afterwards. But, 
you know, we, we had this whole discourse uh, coming from uh, folks like Bernie Sanders that were like, well, we need to get rid of private prisons or from the Obama administration. We need to get rid of the fees and predatory fees and fines that there's this financial corruption. And, and Gio, you talk about policing almost as a protection racket, right, of threatening people and then bringing in resources. But of course, the money involved here is not just the asset forfeiture and the parking tickets, right? I mean, it's facilitating the looting of the economy, right? Another term you've you've talked about so uh, well, Robin, that looting is, is not, the origin of the root word looting is not poor people getting a few things. It's the British imperial forces looting the entire Indian economy, right? And so that's what's going on here. It's the looting of the economy and policing is facilitating that process. Absolutely. And again, this isn't, uh, it's not an accident. It's not a specific policy or a specific piece of this puzzle. It's an overall question of political power and political leverage. Um, because, I mean, asset forfeiture, I think it was about, it was about six years ago, right, that it surpassed um, the money lost in burglaries, right? So the actual money stolen by police surpassed the money stolen by everyone else put together. Um, you know, I think in 2014 and 15, I think that's been rolled back a little bit by some court cases. Um, in in you know, and so you know, any attempt to push that back even further is great. But as Alex, as you point out correctly, it's part of a much broader process of extortion, a much broader blackmail which is based on this really amazing inversion of reality that says no matter how much we fail to produce a safe society, just give us a few more million and we'll do it, right? Give us a few more million and somehow society will get safer. Um, and it's really, it's, it's, it's mind blowing to think about the fact that this works and yet it's one of the only things that works. It's one of the only things that has worked. It generates a kind of fear that has always been the leverage of police unions and police associations um, that they use to drive home their necessity um, and their, you know, the fact that they are the absolute fundamental piece of society if we're not gonna descend into chaos. And I think in reality, this points toward um, tasks for the abolitionist movement, right? Like that, you know, we could, we could sit around decrying the fact that that argument has leverage all day long, but until we can point to an alternative um, that we, you know, that we can offer, until we build that alternative up to a point at which many people will recognize it, until we defund the police, you know, and invest that money in alternatives in such a way that allows us to, to uh, point to it and say, look, we're not getting less safe, we're getting more safe. Um, until we can do that, I think this kind of perverse extortion racket uh, that is policing is going to be able to continue uh, unhindered. You know, you you mentioned defund the police. I'd like to talk about that a little bit because some people see defund the police as consistent with an abolitionist politics. And there's also some tension where people feel like, well, just cutting police budgets and creating some new social services is not the full vision of transformation we're talking about here. So uh, can you say, and you address this in the in the book pre pretty directly, so can you say a little bit about how you think about this tension? Yeah, and again, I think we should start from the understanding that defunding was launched into public discourse by movements in the streets, right? Not because it was the most radical demand. In fact, the most radical demand of abolition was there in the mix, you know, being talked about in the mainstream, um, but defunding is the one that, you know, 
you know, played this this sort of role of what you would call a, you know, uh, an empty signifier that everyone can latch onto, and it means different things to different people. And we saw that when it was emerging. We saw, you know, right wing politicians say, "No, there's no way we're going to defund the police," and in part that was because what they meant was also what the abolitionists mean, which is the total defunding of the police. At the same time that you saw city administration say, yes, we're dedicated to defunding the police. And what Philadelphia does is moves traffic cops um, into a different budget line and calls that defunding the, the police. And so there were cities, of course, that were engaging in defunding in ways that were clearly misleading. But when we're talking about a distinction that many abolitionists um, raise between reformist reforms and potentially abolitionist reforms or non-reformist reforms, more radical reforms, um, the distinction really always has to be made in terms of who it, you know, who it empowers, right? If there's a reform that weakens the power of the police on the one hand, um, that gets them out of communities, that reduces contact with communities, um, then that's something we should at least consider um, as a potentially useful reform. But if there are reforms that, on the other hand, strengthen the hand of the police through new technology, through more funding, through more training and you know ballooning budgets, of course we do not uh, support those. I think defunding, you know, for me, at least in its best form, represents the best kind of transformational non-reformist reform, um, because not only does it weaken police, not only does it have the potential to drain away their budgets as a demand, but what could we do with those millions of dollars, right? I mean, we're looking at, uh, you know, a city like Chicago, where Lori Lightfoot came in talking about changing the police. And if you look at the amount that she um, dedicates to community intervention organizations, grassroots anti-violence organizations, it is minuscule compared to what the Chicago police are getting, even still, even after George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. It's 1% or less. Um, and so what could those organizations do with a large percent of the budget? Um, what could we do in terms of then pointing to that and saying, look, there, there's abolition. It's right there. It's already in existence. It's a real thing that we can point to and that we can, over time, begin to shift more and more funds toward. But some people say, and Robin, I'll ask you to react to this too. Some people say, but is it strategically a good idea to focus our movements for revolutionary transformational change on police budgets? And so, or, or should we be instead you know, focused on a workplace movement, a workers movement, or some other kind of, you know, cross-racial class solidarity movement. Like, how do we, why is policing and the criminal legal system more broadly necessarily such an important locus of struggle? I, I guess for, for me, they're not mutually exclusive. Like, you have to fight on all those fronts. Um, one thing worth thinking about is, you know, we had Occupy, right? You know, and Occupy was a massive movement, brought a lot of people, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world. But it wasn't, it was not nearly as large as a response to the George Floyd killing, which was not just about George Floyd. It was about all, just a whole set of police killings, murders, and just the lack of accountability and the kind of trauma involved. Um, so clearly, it strikes a nerve in for a lot of people. And as as Gio points out too in the book, um, virtually every single urban rebellion in the United States in the 20th century, uh, that is those led by black and brown, especially black people, uh, were were provoked by a case of police violence. So policing is really important. Budgets, on the other hand, goes way beyond actual police violence. It goes to 
the question of how do cities and counties and states spend their money. And, you know, budgets are moral documents, as, as um, you know, uh, Reverend Barber talks about, as, as you know, uh, my friend David Stein talks about, as, uh, as you know, um, I think lots of people talk about, um, uh, you know, so budgets really do tell us something about what the priorities are for government. And so if we take something as basic as in Los Angeles, you know, uh, with the state of California got all this money for homeless services, and LA got all this money um, to help the homeless, right? But where did that money go? Some of it went to nonprofit organizations, NGOs, those kinds of organizations, but a big chunk of it went to the police. Why? Why? So that act itself, which wasn't necessarily um, publicized, um, says something about the immorality of the budget itself, if it's trying to solve social problems and social challenges. So I do think that we, I'm, my, my thing is that defunding the police is actually very useful as, as a, um, again, non-reformist reform, in part because it opens up the question of the budget itself. It, it opens up the books and asks the question, how do we spend this money? And I know that when we start to look at things like the way that private money comes in through, you know, police foundations, the way that donations uh, go into po supporting police, the police state, and the relationship between, say, prisons and jails and their budgets. Now, and I'm not talking about private prisons, but just, you know, the public expenditures that Ruth Wilson Gilmore talked about in her amazing book, Golden Gulag. I mean, when we start looking at the actual numbers, the expenditures, then we could raise some real critical political and moral questions about how the money is spent and what impact it's having on marginalized communities. It's yeah, interesting. I, uh, oh, go ahead, Gio. No, uh, to say, I mean, uh, Robin, I think you, you put it perfectly when you said the George Floyd rebellion touched a nerve, right? But it is the nerve, right, in a lot of ways. Uh, policing upholds not only uh, capitalists' accumulation, but the color line every single day in practice on the streets. And that color line is the fundamental barrier to class solidarity throughout U.S. history. And so these things are not separate, right? We're talking about the linchpin of a broader system. And, and if there's anything we can do to weaken that linchpin, uh, we should do it. Um, and this is exactly why you see the reaction. This is why even tiny changes, the police just lose it. And part of what's great is that they they really out themselves when they do that. And they've done that over the past year or two. They've weaken their own arguments, they weaken their own strategic orientation when it comes to building, uh, you know, sympathy within society because of the small interventions made by movements. You know, there's so many people who have been excluded from participation in formal labor markets. And for them, cap the face of capitalism is the police. It's not a boss because they don't have a formal boss. They're caught up in social services systems, they're unemployed, they're in a homeless, you know, whatever it is, they have informal work. I want, But, you know, this talk about budgets it, and electoral politics lends itself to a very state-centered strategy. And this is something that I struggled with when, when I wrote The End of Policing was because I come out of anti-authoritarian politics. And, Gio, you spent a lot of time talking about community empowerment but also talking about the need to like have transformative politics around the state. 
And there is this tension in abolitionist circles, right, between more state-centered strategies and more, let's call them like transformative justice strategies that are so deeply skeptical of the state, they focus instead on mutual aid, on internal community empowerment. And so I'm wondering how you struggled with this tension. Absolutely. And I think it's not simply the question of like grassroots alternatives and the state, because it's also the question of building kind of prefigurative alternatives. In other words, building that new world and fighting against the old world. Right. And I think obviously both of those pieces are essential. That's why, again, outside of the state, I think police unions need to be targeted. I think other strategic levels uh, need to be involved in this struggle. I don't think it's enough to build these alternatives. I think what happens in an ideal world is that in moments of relative calm, I mean, they're never calm, but moments that are not marked by massive upsurges, um, the work that often is done is this slow work, this grassroots work, this alternative building creation. And then in moments of heightened struggle, like last year, you have a proposal to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department, right? Again, we know abolition and the rebuilding of that world go, you know, they're like two feet that we have to walk on sort of at the same time, but sometimes one is going to run ahead and sometimes we won't have the opportunity to to engage in direct confrontation and we need to be building those alternatives uh, all the time. But I think there are really difficult questions that need to be asked about how to bring these um, small scale alternatives into some conversation with a transformation of power, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about leveraging uh, a power in on the grassroots level that can transform existing structures of power. Part of that is precisely the you know the proliferation of these alternatives, of building them to a degree that they crowd out certain other structures, right? Um, and and that's a, a good thing, right? When you establish and, and it involves also you know intervening on certain levels like. Uh, diverting 911 calls away from the police, right? I mean, the many cities will be glad to have that, you know, in a neoliberal sense, have that out of their hands. But insofar as we're able to crowd out those punitive alternatives, that's a huge contribution, I think, to building this broader uh, sort of ecosystem of resistance and of abolition. But I do want to say, and I do want to argue, uh, and, this is, and this is a comradely argument within the abolitionist movement, that we need to take power seriously. Again, for me, that doesn't mean running candidates necessarily, although it might. It means confronting those structures of power, and it means thinking strategically about how to break the power of the police. So I, I got lots more questions, but I want to get to some in the chat. And so uh, let's take some of those, keep putting the questions in there, and I may insert a few of my own in the conversation as well. So uh, Dennis asks really a question about how do we create racial solidarity within this movement that has been so clearly identified as a question of racial justice? And and I have to say I've been I was so bowled over, pleasantly surprised, so to speak, uh, at how racially diverse the protests last summer were. But we still have a huge amount of work to do to create that cross racial solidarity. I think it's absolutely true, and I'm sure Robin has more to say about it as well than 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 I do. I mean, I was also impressed. I think you know, for looking on in Philadelphia last year, the the spearhead of the re the revolt um, was. 18 to 22 year olds, multiracial, but largely black as well, targeting directly the, um, you know, the guardians of police power, police vehicles, city hall, um, in, in ways that I really haven't seen in such a sharp uh, way before. And so that was all uh, kind of incredibly heartening. Um, and I think there was a great deal of multiracial solidarity. Of course, we have sharp 
contradictions that we need to work out within movements. You know, we need to work out, um, you know, certain uh, understandings and analyses of policing uh, to recognize, for example, the, the role of policing in the expansion of the border in indigenous genocide, um, to the, the role of border policing, and to understand that police abolition is also about abolishing not only ICE, which is relatively new, but abolishing border patrol and ultimately uh, the border, and that that's part of a broader uh, multiracial kind of continental struggle. Um, and we need to work out arguments about, again, how this relates to uh, broader struggles for socialism, communism, anti-imperialism across the globe, and to understand that that despite in many ways the the sort of the U.S. anchor of our concepts of abolitionism, that this is a global struggle, right? It's a struggle that um, can, you know, overlap with and, and dovetail with struggles that are going on in Mexico and Venezuela and South Africa and many other places where people are studying, are struggling, what, against the police um, as vehicles of global capitalist white supremacist power on the one hand and for community control. I mean, it's the same equation in many senses. Um, and, and, you know, I think uh, that's one of the pieces that I definitely want to have in the conversation, in the debate. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with everything Gio just said. Um, I would just add that as we always have this conversation about like, how can you get, you know, working class and poor white people uh, involved there's a parallel conversation going on, uh, which is like, how can we break any kind of multiracial alliance? I mean, you've got the, the right is constantly working overtime, whether it's through voter suppression, uh, whether it's through you know attacks on you know so-called critical race theory, uh, whether it's just policing itself, whether it's housing policy. But this is constant effort to break any potential solidarity across racial lines and that that stuff works um and as J as Jill started out with um you know we are, we have inherited we've inherited um a system of uh white supremacist ideology that is so entrenched that is so powerful that to try to uh you know unravel it requires enormous amount of work um the one thing that always uh frustrates me is when I get the question, you know, how can how can we get more black people and brown people involved in the class struggle? <laughs> you know, when in fact what we're talking about right now is the class struggle. I mean, right straight up in in our faces, those struggles against state power invari invariably is is at the heart and soul of a class struggle. And the amazing thing is is for a brief moment at least, and brief moment in the sun, how many uh, why people actually join in. What my question, and this is a question probably for both of you, is okay, now here we are, um, the end of the summer of 2021, uh, and it just seems like the kind of optimism that we felt in June of last year, uh, and then we kind of demob people demobilized for the sake of trying to get, you know, Trump not elected. Um, you know, where, where are we now on this? Um, you know, we, we saw the Capitol insurrection, in my view, as a response to uh, the rebellions of, of Black Spring, not just a kind of separate from, but very much response to that. Uh, and so we have a lot of work to do if we're going to build those kinds of alliances. But ultimately, sometimes you have to fight even if you don't have those alliances. You know, even if you can't win over a big portion of, of white working people, you just have to fight it. 
Yeah, no, and I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think there's radically different approaches. I think it's not simply, uh, you know, I feel like sometimes we we act as if there are, there are no real differences within questions of strategically how to do this. There are differences, right? Um, there there used to be a framework that you know at least, and maybe you know maybe this is reductive, but it used to be in the in the Communist Party framework of of black and white unite and fight, right? Um, at least in practice, that often meant what is the minimal program that black and white workers can agree on in the factory, and let's fight for that, right? Whereas a more ambitious vision is the one that says, what about targeting those divisions between black and white workers, right? What about targeting wage differentials? What about targeting, uh, you know, the fact that black workers are last hired, first fired within the workforce as a way to unify that class in the struggle forward? And, you know, that may, may, may seem a bit arcane, but I think that at least in Occupy, that speaks a great deal toward what do we think of in terms of the economic question, right? Is it a question of, oh no, let's just focus on these economic questions that we can all agree on and not be divisive so that we can move forward and build this broad solidarity, or the fact that that argument is an argument against a certain kind of solidarity. And it's the solidarity of confronting white supremacy within labor, but also within these sort of economic movements, uh, shutting down the sort of fascist alternative, which is one that Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller were happy to exploit um, and, you know, and happy to, you know, argue and appeal to, um, you know, these 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 arguments to, to bring some black and Latino workers onto their team as well. Um, and, you know, and to move forward by strengthening, right? And I think that's what gives me, uh, you know, a level of, of optimism looking forward um, post-2020 into 2021. I think the main barrier, and I think it'd be no surprise to, to either of you that we face, is this argument about crime, right? Is this argument about, and this is what's being used right now to shut down the discussion about defunding, to shut down the discussion about abolition, certainly. There's always this ideological maneuver that says, everything you thought was possible a year ago, that's definitely not possible, so let's calm down. Let's uh, forget about what happened then. And, and people, and it's really easy to fall into this, but in, in June of 2020, so much seemed possible that we hadn't seen for for decades on the public agenda on the you know on the agenda for debates for movements you know being discussed by city administrations we need to remember that we need to move forward and we're going to need to make uh, very clear arguments about the fact that listen if violent crime is going up in certain ways in certain places um, we need to be critical of those numbers of course we need to pay attention to on what level it's being manipulated exaggerated in philadelphia i think it's very real for example um, but in that context, why on earth would we choose uh, a solution that has never worked, right? Why on earth would our solution to rising crime be something that doesn't statistically reduce crime, that has been shown to do the opposite? Um, policing does not you know, reduce uh, violent crime. And so in the context of rising violent crime, we need to be very clear about the argument that that's not going to work this time either. But I think that's just going to be that's going to be the argument over the next six months to a year. And I think we really need to be able to push forward very, very uh, strongly on that basis. And, and there are folks like interrupting criminalization who've, who've been writing reports about how to push back against that that narrative. And I think that that is a challenge that we need to directly head on address. And, and, and I'm trying to do that in some stuff that I have coming out. But I think it's while we don't see the level of street mobilization that we saw, uh, you know, summer a year ago, there is a tremendous amount of organizing going on. I mean, I continue to be deluged with invitations to talk to people around the country who are doing the work. It's not getting mainstream media coverage. It's not part of some national conversation. But in their local community, they are building a new logic of care and compassion as an alternative to violence and coercion. And they are 
you know, building political support for getting police out of the mental health business, getting the police out of the schools, getting new investments in community-based violence reduction. And every day there's a new victory along those lines. So the mainstream media, you know, uh, summer a year ago, there was a moment where they were open to this because they were trying to figure out what it is. But as soon as they realized what it was, they're like, but we're against that. We, we do not want to talk about that. This is, you know, bad for our corporate image, you know. And so they just shut down the national conversation and went on full counterattack. But this has not stopped the local organizing. So and, and we know, you know, Gio's book is coming out. He mentioned there are many more. Uh, I've read Derricka Purnell's book, Becoming Abolitionists, that will be out next month. It's amazing. You know, Ruth, Ruth Wilson Gilmore has a book that will be coming out. There are other things in the work. So I think it's an exciting moment. I think a growing number of critical voices are more fully embracing this vision. And the, the logic that police are not the appropriate tool for every solution under the sun, I think we've already won that argument in, in really broad terms. We now just need the power to implement it. So along those lines, I'll go to a, a question from uh, Darielle. You know, what, what do we say to our friends, families, et cetera, who live in better off, maybe suburban neighborhoods where they may have some liberal inclinations, but the police are not a problem for them. The police are still viewed as a solution. How do we bring them into the struggle? Um, I mean, it's, it's a good question. It's a difficult question. I mean, I maybe tip my hand at the beginning and say uh, maybe they're not the, the driving force of this struggle moving forward, but that's not to say they're not, you know, uh, people that we want on board, especially if they have sympathies. Um, but I think, you know, and, and I engage with this question, I think uh, that Tamara Nopper raised very well uh, in, in the suggestion that, that, that abolition looks like a suburb, you know, in, in AOC's terms. Um, uh, why? And what AOC meant was, you know, uh, well-funded schools, well-funded cities, and not much policing. The reality though, you know, as Tamara shows, is the suburbs are policing, right? The suburbs are, you know, the, the outgrowth of policing and they are protected by, you know, the police, their wealth is protected. They are protected, you know, in, in ways, you know, their fear is upheld and, and governed by, you know, by the structures of policing and segregation, you know, and, you know, today is, is all about that division. So one thing I think to say to those people is, listen, you do, the police are a part of your life. They are a fundamental part of your life, and and you live uh, in part in relation to what the police are doing elsewhere and the lines that they're drawing territorially between the city uh, and the suburbs. So I think that's a crucial part of it. Um, although I do think you know it's important to, you know, to to be to allow people to be critical of their local police as well, to allow them to understand a trade-off as well. It's not it's not that suburban local police are not sucking their budgets dry either. They also are. Right. And as, as Marbury Stanley Butts, a great attorney at Movement for Black Lives says, in most of those communities, they never see the police. And that's how well they police. They just don't have to confront them. And um, because they're not, they're, they're doing something different in the way they police. Uh, and so out of sight, out of mind, you know. Uh, and we know this because in those same communities, kids are doing all kinds of, people are doing all kinds of things that basically are violations of the law. Uh, but they're not being held accountable for those those violations. Um, one thing I should also 
um, add, and this is one of the really important elements of of Gio's book as well, is that you know it's not just a book about police; it's a book about how to reduce violence and harm. And so, one of the things um, he talks about uh, are those efforts on the part of of often low income, often urban communities, to in fact uh, take control of the interpersonal violence, reduce interpersonal violence, reduce gendered violence, find safe spaces, figure out ways to intervene, um, not just interrupt. And of course, Derricka Purnell's book talks about this. Uh, Maram Kaba's book, which is, I think, a really important collection of, of, of her essays, are really important in, in this regard. Um, and so it's one thing to live in the suburbs and say, well, what, what can I do? It's another thing to figure out and recognize that there's a holistic sort of approach to trying to make communities safe. And it involves so many things, not just the actual elimination of the institutional police, but figure out how to get people resources, uh, spaces, the, the elimination of of just public space itself, the privatization of all the space, which doesn't allow for you know actual community building. I mean, these are just basic things, let alone the dismantling of a welfare state um, and the fact that schools are not just bad and underfunded, but they're just being closed. <laughs> I mean, that's that's devastating for a city like Chicago or or other other cities like that, you know. And I think you, you, I mean, because people are struggling to to try to explain, you know, these spikes in violence in, in in many cities across the country right now. And like that's it, right? We're actually seeing in in many ways the cashing out of what's been going on for a long time, right? There's no public space, there are no programs, and so what happens under COVID lockdown, particularly to young people, is that they're supposed to stay at home all day long, or what? They're not supposed to be out in public, and there's no public space to be in. Um, and there's it should be no surprise, especially given the state of schools, um, the the lack of alternatives that this results in a great deal of not only black market activity, but violent activity, right? Um, this should be absolutely no surprise. And this is a question that, you know, this is the fundamental question, right, is how to build those alternatives, how to expand them. And again, as Alex asked earlier, this ranges from in engagement with the state, right, demanding more funding for after school programs, swimming pools, sports programs, um, you know, um, to building intermediate alternatives, right? Engaging with not necessarily, you know, what we call, want to call nonprofits, but many of the community organizations and funded organizations that are providing medium scale alternatives. And it goes all the way down to the local level, right? What are you doing with your neighbors, right? What happens on the block if there's a conflict? Can you all establish something very, very simple, right? Like a, like a thread of phone numbers to let everyone else know what's going on on the block. If there's a, so that if the police are there, you can keep an eye on what they're doing and help protect other neighbors. But also, if there's a conflict on the block, that you can intervene without it becoming, uh, you know, without it becoming violent. Um, and it's important to build professional organizations and programs that do this, of course. And I don't want to take away from that, um, but it's really going to be the deprofessionalization of this practice. I think that's really going to go the furthest to actually changing the way that people engage with uh, with their neighbors um, and reduce violence in their own communities. I mean, uh, you know, I like to say in the book, we know what abolition looks like. We don't always call the police on our family you know, on our parents, on our brothers, sisters, cousins, nieces, and nephews, we don't. And yet we're willing to call them on other people's brothers and nieces and nephews. Um, and I think it, it's not like it's a surprise to us that we could deescalate, that we could think about different ways of engaging with other community members. Um, I think we just need to do it, build it, and, and build it in an ambitious way. There's some great stuff in, uh, I believe, 
I believe it's Patrice Cullors' um, memoir about how they self-organize within their family to manage a family member who has some severe mental health challenges because they understood that policing were actually uh, was a source of danger. And we see this also in Derricka's book and in Charlene Carruthers' book and in all these narratives. You know, we have this, this false reactionary narrative that says, well, you know, if we get rid of police, it'll be bad for these poor black women. And that's why we need police is to protect them. When in fact, the leadership of these movements in these communities is almost entirely black women who have not been made safe by policing, ju- just the opposite. Uh, and in terms of the the earlier question about like what do we say to our suburban friends and family, you know, I think there one little like wedge issue is the war on drugs. We've seen this explosion of opioid overdoses, the intrusion of methamphetamine that has d- devastated some of these communities, and the response from a lot of politicians is, you know, well then more death penalty for drug offenders, and we're gonna you know, arrest the person who gave them the drug, who also is their friend and also over to, you know, and I think there's a growing sense that like, oh, right, maybe just throwing more people in prison is not the best way to solve these problems. And I think we can take that logic and and build on it. You were also talking, you know, Gio, you're beginning to talk about some of these community-based alternatives to policing. And, And Corey asks, you know, to hear about some more programs that are helping both replace policing and build stronger communities. Yeah, and I think the reality is, and the the really the good thing, um, the wonderful thing is that there are too many to even mention, right? There are too many to count. Uh, you know, again, on all of these levels, um, intervening in in and against the state, demanding things of the state, creating different you know alternatives, and, and the question is you know, on what level are we talking and what kind of intervention are we talking about? You know, if we're talking about the history of, for example, rape crisis centers and other other alternatives for women to engage with rather than calling the police who don't help uh, when it comes to sexual assault remotely, in fact, inflict far more onto women than they actually solve or, or prevent. And when it talks to community intervention, you've got you know, honestly, lots of different models, right? You know, there's the kind of cure violence model, which there's some criticism of, I think that's now operating in Philly as well. Um, But other attempts to uh, intervene directly in these conflicts, create these organizations, particularly on the neighborhood level, um, you know, as a way of, uh, you know, of of preventing violence before it begins. Mask, Mothers Against Senseless Killing in Chicago is another uh, great example. But again, you know, despite showing measurable contributions to public safety is not getting funded by the city, is not getting the kind of funding that the police uh, are getting. Um, and, you know, these these alternatives, I think, exist all across the country. You've got diversion programs to keep people, you know, out of prison, to keep them out of the, you know, out of the system. And there are, are really just, uh, in, in many ways, uh, too many to count. I think in your local community, if you, if you want to look for one and find one and engage in these kind of, uh, you know, uh, organizing and struggles, there are many, you know, many resources that you could draw upon. I'm sure, you know, Alex has already mentioned some, of course, you've got organizations like Critical Resistance as well um, that are always, you know, providing a kind of uh, almost like a clearinghouse for different abolitionist alternatives. You have organizations like Insight that have an entire network of, of radical sort of anti-carceral institutions oriented toward uh, the needs of women of color in particular. And I just think there's there are really so many possibilities. It's really a question of people understanding that they exist already and thinking about how to plug into them, how to expand them. But again, I'll say one, you know, 
in the we, we act like this can't be done in the middle of the George Floyd rebellion, uh, a you know a, a basically a, a text you know thread was established um, with more than 1,100 people um, to provide a security apparatus for the protest area uh, in Minneapolis. That's something everyone could do in their communities, and it was done in Minneapolis on a huge scale in a matter of just a few days. That's the kind of thing that needs to be happening uh, nationwide. And you know what? The police pulled out. The police knew they weren't welcome and they withdrew. Um, and the community there in the park was keeping themselves safe throughout, you know, throughout this and in the face of white supremacist violence, in the face of vigilante violence from the police themselves. What well, one of my one of my uh, favorite groups here in New York is Vocal New York, which is a grassroots constituency-based organization of folks who have been drug involved. Uh, many of them have, have experienced homelessness, have been incarcerated, and they have committees that work on harm reduction and civil rights, and they are this force for, you know, trying to deconstruct the police state and to demand humane alternatives. And I think, to, and this goes more broadly to these strategic questions, you know, to the extent that they win things, they make the lives of poor people, people in vulnerable communities better. And to the extent to which the state refuses to meet their obviously just demands for a safe place to live, adequate medical treatment, food to eat, you know, it just points out the fundamental contradictions of this neoliberal capitalist system that is willing to grind huge parts of the population up into sausage so that they can make their downtown real estate deals and you know live in their high-rise apartments and gated communities. And I think any struggle that heightens those contradictions while building people power is what we should be looking to support. How do we, we got one more sort of straightforward question and then we'll, I think, move to close up here, but how do we prevent social services, this is from Amit, from taking on the same role of policing, right? How do we make sure that we don't just defund the police and the, then fund a social services apparatus that can be just as racist and just as controlling? And you've you got uh, Dorothy Roberts' uh, amazing new book about the ways in which the child welfare system has helped to dismantle the black family. It has not been a source of liberation. <laughs> um, so what do we do to prevent that from happening? Well, one, the first thing to do, I guess, is to acknowledge uh, that social services, in fact, are a reflection of state power, which is a racialized state. And certainly Dorothy Roberts, um, Peggy Cooper Davis, a number of other people have talked about, about this. Um, certainly the welfare state itself, uh, one of the arguments for basic income is to dismantle the welfare state as a policing apparatus, because what it was designed to do was basically put social workers on the payroll to police um, individuals to make sure they don't have more than is the fundamental minimum in order to get uh, their their what was back in the old days food stamps now EBT cards same thing you got um, electronic benefits transfer cards that 
uh, replace food stamps that are used as a form of surveillance to basically police what poor people buy, police their movements, collect data on them. So yes, this whole, it's, so that's why I think the argument is not so much you just take money and move it from one existing institution to another one. You've got to remake them and remake them fundamentally, which is why there's, there's not a separation between saying five for 15, basic income, uh, housing support, uh, you know, fundamental fair and affordable housing and dismantling the police and to create institutions that are actually run by um, people in their communities to make decisions about what to do. I mean, mutual aid is is in many ways, as, as, as Gio pointed out, and as you point out as well, is prefigurative, but there are institutions that actually could take the place of the existing police-based welfare state as we know it. Um, so there's a lot of work to do uh, in in this capacity, you know. Well, guys, it's been an amazing conversation. Gio, Robin, thanks so much for including me in it. I want to give a special thanks to uh, Verso Books and Haymarket Books for doing this kind of a joint event. You know, we have to understand that uh, that we're in this movement together and that we need to, this is a great act of solidarity for the movement to, to work together on this. And it's just a sign of the growth of this new critical discourse and and also I think a hunger to engage these ideas. So uh, Gio, congratulations again on the amazing book and I hope that is just helps stimulate more and more of these critical conversations. Thank you both so much for being here again. Thanks yeah. of course to Verso and to Haymarket. Thank you both for reading it. And thanks to everyone out there who has been reading it, who has been recommending it, who's been participating in reading groups about it. Um, and my only hope is that it becomes useful for people as these struggles move forward. Yes, thank you. Get in the struggle. Okay. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, Subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.